Since we are these weeks in the Gospel of John, we're going to be in this Holy Week reading the stories of the Holy Week also from the Gospel of John. So I invite you to um, open your Bibles if you have them or the text will be projected. We're going to read through this story of what's commonly known as the triumphal entry. We're going to read just a little bit of the background to it so we can catch in the Gospel of John how he couches this story. So we're going to read, first of all, from John 11, verses 55 to 57. So John writes, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and you have to remember that this was the central feast for the Jewish people and deeply, deeply rooted in and related to the whole theme of liberation. Remember, the Passover was the celebrating the time when God, through Moses, rescued Israel from 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. It's like they're July 4, but then much deeper and much more meaningful and much closer to home. This was when they thought we were liberated once so many years ago. What might it be like if we could be liberated today? So the Passover of the Jews was, was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves so the Jews were, came from all over the land into Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So Jerusalem was full of people, was bursting at the seams. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So this, this warrant was out for the arrest of Jesus. And the whole city knew it. Anyone who saw him should have gone to the Pharisees and religious leaders and turned him in. But just get an idea of the kind of tension that there was in this city. And then John goes on. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, which was a little village on the east side of Jerusalem, just a few miles away, where Lazarus was. And of course, we haven't read through this story in John yet, but in John chapter 11, Lazarus is the one who was raised from the dead. And this was the, the crucial miracle that turned the Jewish leaders against Jesus. When they saw that he had risen, raised Lazarus from the dead, they really then decided they needed to do away with him. So John is in upping, upping the ante here, upping the tension. Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So there's this there's this meal, this I think familiar story to many of you. Um, Mary pours the ointment over Jesus, very expensive, and then Jesus and Judas have this interaction. And then John goes on, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Okay, here's this Lazarus again as a central point. All these people coming to see Jesus and Lazarus. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The pressure is being ramped up. Now not only Jesus is, is, has, a, has the death warrant, but Lazarus as well. He was obviously a totally innocent bystander in all of it. He was dead, and it happened to him. The next day, <clears throat> the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, and I'll just make a comment here. This palm thing goes refers in the in the in the history of that time refers back about 150 years to to the Maccabean rebellion against the Roman um, against the Roman Empire and what the governor at that time did in the temple. And palm trees were a part of that rebellion. So these palm trees are not just something that happens by chance. This is a sign of rebellion. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So the crowd of Jews in Jerusalem heard that Jesus was coming, They're already in a high state of excitement or tension. Remember what we just read, that the Jewish leaders had put out a warrant for Jesus' arrest. And yet all of this is happening in a very public way. There's no hiding. Jesus is not sneaking into the city. They took palm branches, this sign of rebellion. They went out to meet him. They shouted, Hosanna. And I've mentioned this here before, but um, we tend to think that Hosanna refers to, is a word of praise, like we're praising you, Jesus. It's not. It's actually a Hebrew or Aramaic word, and it means save us. There's no praise in here. This is a cry coming from the depth of the heart. A cry coming from a people in oppression. A cry coming from the tension of possible rebellion. A cry that lives among the people every day. Save us. Because we are in deep, deep trouble and distress. And they've been waiting for so many centuries for this king, for this son of David to come. 
And so Jesus comes in on a, on a donkey, on a colt. And I've also mentioned this before in previous years, but historians tell us that Pilate, the governor, whose name you will recognize, was responsible for keeping the peace in Jerusalem during the Passover. And Pilate, as all empire does, has only one way to keep the peace, and that's with an army. Pilate normally did not reside in Jerusalem. He resided on the coast. He had like a palace there, a summer palace or something like that. So right around this time, perhaps even on the same day, but if not the day before or the day after, Pilate would have ridden into Jerusalem with his army, with the horses and the chariots and the Roman soldiers, with their army and with all their weapons. On the one side is this empire rolling in, marching into Jerusalem. And on the other side is Jesus coming in on this colt. And then John quotes from Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A prophecy that probably every single Jew in that time knew could, could say it uh, by heart. Rejoice. John, trans, John uses the word fear not, but the, the, what Zechariah says is rejoice. Daughter of Zion. Just think for a second about that word daughter. At that time in the Jewish culture, the unmarried daughter was the most precious part of the household, person in the household. If you have a daughter or if you have a granddaughter, you probably know what that's like. Or maybe you are a daughter and you know how you related to your father if if you had that good fortune most precious thing in your life is this unmarried daughter. But also very vulnerable because she hasn't left your home yet to marry the man who will take care of her and protect her for the rest of their lives. So she remains protected within the father's household and maintains the father's honor. And I find it so typical of the scriptures that at this particular moment of tension and this particular moment of, of, of kingship and, and rebellion and who knows what's going to happen, the attention is placed on the daughter, the most precious and the most vulnerable part of the household. Your king is coming. Righteous, and again, as I say often from here, whenever you see the word righteous in the scriptures, you need to think that it also or maybe really means justice. This king is just. He's bringing justice. 
having salvation, and the word there is Yeshua, the same word as the name of Jesus, bringing deliverance from oppression. Humble. And that word humble is a word that in the Old Testament actually refers to someone who doesn't have any property, who's poor, who's wretched, who's needy. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem without any property, poor, wretched, and needy. And here you see again, just as with daughter, the identification with the vulnerable, with those who don't have a voice with those who have no power, with those who are oppressed and exploited. Mounted on the colt, the fall of a donkey. Pilate's coming on this one side and everybody's shouting, Ave Pilatus. And Jesus is coming in on the other side. Humble, identifying with the poor, with those who don't have a voice bringing justice and salvation. And then Zechariah goes on, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Leave the text up there for just a second, if you would. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. In other words, the instruments of battle are going to be defanged. They're going to be taken away. You won't be able to do battle anymore. But here's the interesting thing. You would normally think if you are in a position of a people that's oppressed, that God would say to you, I'm going to take away the war, the war horses and the chariots and the spears and the swords of your enemies of the Romans. That's not what he says. He says, I'm going to cut off the chariot from Ephraim, which is another way to, to talk about Israel. Ephraim was one of the tribes of Israel. And the war horse from Jerusalem, from this city of Jerusalem, you Jewish people, I'm not taking the war horse from the, from the Romans. See that? I'm taking it from you. And now you can go on to the next one. A reversal there. Not at all what you would normally think. And after I take the war horse from you, I'm going to speak peace to the nations. And I'm going to rule from sea to sea, from the river Euphrates, from where the whole history of the world began, to the ends of the earth. I'm coming in justice, bringing deliverance. I'm humble. I'm identifying with the poor. I'm going to take your weapons away, people of God. And I'm going to speak peace to the ends of the earth. This passage in Zechariah was written after the exile. You remember that uh, uh, all of 
Israel at the time, but we're now talking about the southern two tribes, Judah, had been in exile in Babylon and had come back after 70 years. And there was this little remnant of people living in, in Jerusalem and rebuilding it at the time that Zechariah wrote, about 500 years before Christ. And, and these people were there, and they were back, but they weren't free. Jerusalem was kind of rebuilt. There, was a, there were walls and there was a temple, but it wasn't like what it was, but it was better than destroyed. But they weren't actually realizing what the promise had been. And in the time of Jesus, nothing had changed. In fact, the situation had gotten worse. Now, instead of being under the Persians, which was a relatively um, friendly rule, benevolent, they were now under the Romans. And the Romans had this benevolence about them, but there was this deep cruelty and this deep use of violence that the Romans used to keep everything cool and calm. So as Jesus came in, And the people called on him to save them. The fact is that it didn't happen. Forty years after this, approximately, 35, 40 years after this, the city of Jerusalem, what we're talking about this morning, was leveled. And the historian Josephus estimates that a million Jews were killed. So this prophecy and all of these actions are happening, and there's all of this promise. But nothing really seems to have come of it. The situation hasn't really changed. And today, after 2,000 years, 2,000 years after these events happened, 2,000 years after the events of Holy Week, we have had in our country, in the United States, just this week, another week of turmoil that threatens to shake our foundations to the core. A shooting in Nashville on Monday, again, in an elementary school. The tornadoes that swept across our land on a couple of different days. I just saw this morning the count from yesterday's alone was 27, and I don't remember the other ones were somewhere in that neighborhood. And you saw the pictures of the destruction. And regardless of what your opinion is about it, that is, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing or, or its motivations or whatever, the fact is that for the first time in the history of our country, a former president, president has been indicted for crimes, for felonies. Can you maybe feel a little bit of the tension as we go into this holy week? 
are kind of in trouble. And the first thing that this story shows us, demonstrates to us, and that the prophecy of Zechariah says to us is force, violence, political power is not the answer. The war chariots, the guns, the warplanes, the tanks need to be taken away, perhaps, from us. Not from them, but from us. Again, without saying anything specific about what I think about the Second Amendment and gun rights, have you ever heard a Christian or a group of Christians say something like this? Yes, I have the constitutional right to bear arms, but for the well-being and safety of others, especially our children, I would be willing to give up that right. If you've ever heard a Christian say that, or if it's been printed anywhere, send it to me. I'd like to see it. I haven't seen it. In fact, the ones in general... who wear the AR-15 emblem on their lapels and send Christmas cards of their family, pictures of their family armed with long rifles, tend to be Christians. Again, whatever you think about gun rights, wouldn't it be something if we as Christians would project to the world that we care about the oppressed, about those who are marginalized, that we're willing to lay down our rights in order to serve and to make sure that no other child no other person has to be torn apart by a bullet from a long rifle. And then Jesus the King brings peace. But again, when you stop and think about it, as I've already mentioned, it's kind of hard to figure that out because he didn't really... No peace has come yet. There wasn't peace in the time of Zechariah. There wasn't peace in the time of Jesus. There wasn't peace in the generation after Jesus. There wasn't peace in the centuries after Jesus. Jesus. 
There isn't really peace in our time. In fact, we don't even know, and some of us are quite concerned and perhaps a little bit fearful about what these next years are going to look like for our country. What are the next decades going to look like for our world with the political, economic, and ecological crises we face? What are these next years going to look like for you and me as individuals, for our families, for our communities? What are they going to look like for us as Trinity Church? Feel a little bit of that tension? Again, I don't think it's for us as quite as intense as it was in Jerusalem on that day. Do you feel that tension? And Jesus rides into our Jerusalem on a young donkey. And he brings justice, and he brings deliverance. He identifies with the poor and the marginalized. He speaks peace to the nations. He reigns from sea to sea. And right now, at the beginning of this holy week, probably all we can do is shout. Or maybe just whisper. Or maybe just sob. Hosanna. Save us.